Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hughes Interviews. I'm branching out from the musical theatre world a little bit today and I'm talking to um, author, playwright, director, actor, just about everything, podcast host, uh, Gabriel Bergmoser. And I also have Daniel Cosgrove who's with me, who is in currently in Moonlight, which is one of Gabe's plays that he has written and is currently directing will be on very shortly. What are the dates for that again? So 17th of January it opens um, at the Grace Darling in Fitzroy and then runs through the 4th of February. That sounds extensive, it's only two shows a week. So right. it's only six shows <laughs> over a really long period of time with the thinking being we can like hopefully drum up some like word of mouth in between provided we don't suck. It's um, like Wednesdays and Sundays. Wednesdays and Sundays, yeah, yeah. Great. Awesome. Well that's pretty achievable days for people to get to. If you can't do the weekend, you can do the weekday. True. And so the idea of it being, well, you should probably talk about the show first. Uh, now, to my understanding, it's about Bush Rangers, but it's not about Ned Kelly. No, so it's, um, it's kind of funny how it came about because, like, I've, people who know me know this, but, like, I've always been a really, really big Ned Kelly fanatic. Like, I grew up in Mansfield, so it was in the area where he killed the three policemen at Stringybark Creek and everything. And, like, you know, any time we were driving to one of the three towns that is within an hour's drive from Mansfield, I'd be like, all right, can we stop at this famous <laughs> Kelly location or this famous Kelly location or this famous Kelly location? Because, like, literally all of those towns kind of play out the fact that one of them might have had a pub that Ned Kelly might once have drank at, mm. which, like, as an 11-year-old Ned Kelly obsessed, I was like, we must visit this pub. Um, so, so you, you would have loved the, his armour at the museum. Oh, I've seen... I've, I've <laughs> been there by myself more times than I care to admit. Anyway, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of, like, Bush Rangers and that part of Australian history and everything. And I've always wanted to write a play about Ned Kelly, um, so I ended up writing a play about Captain Moonlight. Mm. Um, so the reason for that, I guess, is twofold. Um, one is that... Ned Kelly has had so much written about him. Like, I'm a real apologist for the Heath Ledger film. Mm. I think it's kind of got a lot going for it. I can, already there's, like, yeah. giggles happening. I'm like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have said this. Um, but, no, I, I really, really like that movie. I think it's got huge issues, but I do think it's somewhat underrated. Um, mm. And then earlier this year, I saw the um, the stage production at the National oh, Theatre the of Ned, Ned, the musical, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I kind of walked in really sceptical about, and then I walked out being like... Holy shit, it was so good. Right? And like, you saying that, like, oh, I don't, don't mm. hurt me. <laughs> um, don't make me bitterly jealous this early in. But, um, but yeah, so like, I saw that and it was like, shit, at a certain point, like, I really want to write an Ed Kelly play, but you kind of have to interrogate yourself a bit and be like, what have I got to say that hasn't already been said? Mm. And what angle am I literally just doing it because I want to write one? Like, what have I got to say that's interesting, new and fresh? Mm. And so kind of into this came Dan Nixon, who sort of the co-producer, co-creator of this project. And he basically came to me and said that he really wants to write a play about Captain Moonlight. So at the point I'd heard about Captain Moonlight, Dan gave me this book and him to read. And I was sort of like, look, you know, I'll read the book. And if I'm interested, if I find it engaging, I think there's a story to be told here. I'll definitely do it. And I read the book and the deeper and deeper I got into, um, into kind of exploring this guy's life, the more I was like, how the hell does nobody know this story? Like, while Ned Kelly is kind of the, you know, the big, sweeping, romantic epic, Moonlight's like the slightly grimier, slightly dingier, slightly stranger, and ultimately way more unique story. Mm. So, I mean, Moonlight, to summarise briefly, he was, a, he was a pastor, he was a oh. soldier, he fought in the, allegedly fought in the Civil War, um, and the Maori War in New Zealand. Uh, he definitely fought there, allegedly fought in the Civil War. Um, he spent a while in a ship in Sydney Harbour where he was caught by the police after a boat chase around the harbour. <laughs> that's so so I really so so hear that. Um, like that. That's awesome. He broke out of jail. Like, he was in jail for a while. He broke out after a week, went on the run for a week, then let himself get caught again, being like, I'm just... Proving a point about how shitty jail security system is. 
Um, shortly after that, he pleaded insanity, got sent to, to a mental institution, was sent back a few days later where the institution people were like, he's not crazy, he's just an asshole. <laughs> and basically, like, just everything about his life was really, really strange. <laughs> and he was also gay. Yeah. And that's something that... There's been a bit of conjecture about it for years, but, like, since his letters have kind of come out... Um, it's very, very obvious if you read his letters and the, the, you read the way he writes about James Nesbitt, who was his member of his gang. Mm. And the Moonlight Nesbitt love story is kind of, I guess, the heart of the story we're trying to tell. But if you read um, Moonlight's letters and you read anything about him, you realise that it's kind of the crux of his whole life. Like, he was completely devoted to this guy to the extent that 100 years after he died, he was exhumed and buried next to James Nesbitt in That's accordance nice. with his final letters and his mm. final demands, which weren't met at the time that he was hanged. So everything about this story, like this mix of, um, of sort of bizarre, hilarious, crazy things, stuff that just makes no sense and stuff that is like powerfully, sweetly romantic was kind of just immensely compelling to me. Mm. And so, well, so I'm, yeah, I'm hooked already. Yeah. So it, it's just a fascinating story. And I mean, there's, it's like just little things that you hear about that maybe aren't necessarily true, but are really fascinating. Like this one story where when he was on the run with his gang, he sent word to the Kelly gang and he wrote to Ned Kelly and was like, Hey, we should join forces. But apparently it was like very condescending. It was like, you know, I'll be in charge and you'll kind of, you know, you, you can be my second in command and your gang can kind of, you know, they'll have to work their way up the ranks, but you know, we can work together and you can learn from my expertise and everything. And so Ned Kelly wrote him a letter back being like, if you come within a hundred feet of me, I'll kill you. <laughs> so Moonlight started robbing stagecoaches and saying he was Ned Kelly. Oh, the further he went. Um, on the one hand, to capitalise on the fact that there was a lot of pro-Kelly sentiment at the time. Mm. On the other hand, to get Ned Kelly in deeper, Ned Kelly in deeper and deeper shit, so that Take when you him. know the time came, he'd be yeah. more screwed than he already was. Right. Awesome. So yeah, very very fascinating character that not many people know about. I believe there hasn't. Yeah, I can't believe I, I didn't. Heard I him. hadn't heard anything about him when Gabe sort of talked to me about the project. I was like, oh, he said that he was writing something about um, Moonlight. I had no idea, mm. but um. As Gabe said, it's it's a super unique story. Um, two male bushrangers in love. Um, yeah, it's just something that, you know, something that you wouldn't put together. You wouldn't put those two no. things together. A band of bushrangers, um, two of which are... Yeah. A low-speed boat chase around Sydney. Huh? Yeah, oh, well, yeah, we haven't quite got the budget for the yeah, boat chase, yeah, but unfortunately, um... that part of the story. The film comes out. I can't wait mm. to see but, that. But yeah, like just it was. It's it's a mega fascinating story, and um, and yeah. I think the the way that um Dan Nixon, who again approached me with the project in the first place, when I kind of decided to do it, I went to him and I was like, like this is an amazing story. I can't believe no one's done it yet, but also nobody knows about it. And the way Dan summed up, which I think was perfect, was that. Not many people know about it, but it's not obscure enough that sooner or later somebody won't do something mm. with it, mm. like whether it becomes a TV show or a movie or something. Um, like I was, well, I was meeting with the producer the other day and I mentioned Moonlight and I was kind of pitching the project to him and, and he was like, and I was, I was pitching it as if like I had this amazing story yeah. that like, you know, nobody knew or anything. And he goes, yeah, he goes, yeah, we've actually considered a couple of different films about Captain Moonlight. So I'm like, oh shit, so it is out there. <laughs> yeah. Like people are, so it's sort of like trying to kind of get in now and get like, yeah, yeah, yeah look yeah, at this yeah, story yeah. that we've Especially there discovered. Seems, there always seems to be like resurgent waves of interest in mm. Bushra and there's, well, there's, they're doing there, a TV series it, yeah. at the moment on a whole heap of different... Well, like, a, I think it's the History Channel or something. Didn't a movie yeah, come out about Ben Hall as well? Yeah, Legend of Ben Hall came yeah. out last year. Mm. Um, and then there's a new Ned Kelly film coming out either this year or next year, directed by... Um, oh, is it a film? I thought it was a miniseries. No, no, it's a film. It's or a there film. might be miniseries right. as well, but um, Justin Kurtzel, who made Snowtown. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we He's are directing it, yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah, so, I mean, Australia's always obsessed with... 
push ranges. Well, it's kind of the one interesting thing we have to our name. Yeah. So we sort <laughs> yeah. of have to foreground as much as we possibly can. Exactly. So um, in terms of the, the play, so that's where the idea came from. Now, um, Dan was saying that you are using song uh, acapella singing as well. Is yeah. this your first time tackling uh, yep. song? <laughs> it, is, it is indeed. And um, uh, how's the transition from straight play to play with song going? Um... I want to say mildly terrifying to offset the fact that it's enormously terrifying. <laughs> like it's, it's just such a, it's such a thing that I just don't, and I've always like, I always liked musicals, but it's just an area I have no, no expertise in whatsoever. Mm. So pretty much from the start, I made it really clear to Dan, who's written all the songs and is handling that side of it. That like, yeah, I will direct the play side of it. Like I wrote the script, like I wrote the script as a straight play basically. Mm. Um, knowing that music was going to be integrated and knowing that was going to be an integral part of it, but I wrote it just as I would any other straight play. And I've directed my side of it essentially as I would any straight play. I don't know if that's how you're meant to direct musical theatre. I don't know anything about it. But like I said from the start, I was like, yeah, I will do this, but you handle your stuff. I'll handle my stuff because I wouldn't, I, I, unfortunately, I'm not arrogant enough to like try to dip my hand into that area and be like, yeah, I can handle this when I clearly can't. Mm. So yeah, I'm kind of just sticking purely in my comfort zone here. But oh, Collaboration. Yeah, yeah. But sort of the deeper we get into it, the more I'm like, how the hell are we going to make this work? It's... It's been like, you know, a little bit, a little bit stressful, but, but I'm, I'm confident everyone knows what they're doing, I think. Well, the so. thing is all the music's original as well. Like Dan yeah. Nixon, um, apart from one of the songs um, where he's taken parts of um, something else, I won't give away what song it is, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's quite a bit of original music, which is stressful enough in itself. Yeah, as it is. Mm. Um, but from what I've heard and I heard the band the other day, we've got um, beautiful um, strings and, um, I think it's going to be very unique. It's, um, uh, yeah, I, I think people will enjoy listening. The music's very easy listening for a musical. I yeah, put it that absolutely. way. Like very Celtic. Is a kind of feel. Irish folky. Yeah, yeah with a very bluegrass yeah. kind of infused in there as yeah. well. So it's it's really unique in that regard. And um, I think where Gabe says you know it's it's stressful and that kind of stuff. You know, this part. In all musicals, it's stressful trying to like get your different um, mediums together. But um, at least there's no dance. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, no, there isn't. There isn't any dance. Um, but yeah, I think we're well on our way. I think um, we've got a couple of weeks until it opens, and um, uh, I think all the elements are there. I think we're yeah, we're almost ready. So it's just a matter of kind of like doing that last bit of tightening to bring everything together. But it's all there and yeah and the songs are, the songs are awesome like I really I've actually caught myself a few times like just listening to the rough cuts of the songs by themselves and stuff because they're just they're very catchy they're very fun like the, the idea that Dan kind of always pitched from the start was that it's not quite a musical it's not quite a play it's not quite a cabaret it's essentially just like a, a story told with theatre and songs that we essentially want to cram as many people into the space as possible and just kind of have a rollicking good time. Mm. Just, like, tell this story with, like, really jaunty music that will hopefully have, you know, foots tapping and whatnot. That's the thing. It's, it suits... It suits... We're, we're doing the show, um, The Grace Darling, which is in a the pub. pub. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it is pub-like music. It is just... Um, yeah, definitely. All the different elements are there. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be... It's going to be a pretty fun night out for those, um, mm. you know, and especially... Gabe hasn't really talked about you know the writing process and stuff like that, but this is the script is incredible. Um, he's done a really really good job as well as you know that's a lot of research that's gone into this. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think um, audience is going to get something a bit different to your traditional, you know, uh, even an Australian musical. I think um, there's a lot that's unique, not just the music, but the way that it's written. It's very much you know um, very. Um, 
impactful dialogue. Um, there's a lot of tension without giving away um, too much that actually happens in the script. Um, there's a lot of meat in there, and I think audiences are going to be really receptive to that. So um, it's a dream show to be doing as an actor. Well, yeah, look, I think so. Um, as an actor, you always look for scripts that um, buy you in, and I, um, I spoke to both Daniel Nixon and Gabe um, before the project. I'd always wanted to work with Gabe. I've known Gabe for a while um, and been aware of, you know, his writing and his work and stuff like that and always wanted to work with him. And uh, um, as soon as I read the script, I was like, this is like nothing I've done before. It's a lot more dialogue compared to songs. Um, the dialogue really got me, especially <laughs> especially my own character. I really like playing characters um, that are a bit nastier. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was just a fleshy part um, and the script, you know, spoke to me I love doing Australian work especially something that's new mm. um, so yeah I think you know I think there's a lot in there for everyone and kind of what like having worked with you guys as well like the fun of it has been that like a lot of and this like this is probably surprising to people but a lot of the scripts doesn't actually feature Captain Moonlight mm. so the structure of it is essentially a battle of the wills between Faulkner McDonald who owned the station that Moonlight held up right at the end of his career and James Rogan oh sorry uh, Tom Rogan who's one of yeah. the gang members um, and so uh, Dan plays Falcon McDonald and um, and James Coley, who's also a VCA musical theatre. Oh, no, he's a BAPA. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, cool. BAPA, BAPA graduate. Um, so he plays Tom Rogan. And basically the way the play works is that, like, it's at the station in the last days of Moonlight's hold-up of Wanted Battery Station. Everyone's drunk. Everyone's partying because that's pretty much what happened until the police turned up and shut the whole thing down. And they drunkenly get into a debate about Captain Moonlight. Mm. And as it goes on, more characters kind of join in. So, like, Falcon McDonald's wife and brother join in. Um, Gus Wernicke, who's one of the other gang members, joins in. And they all are sort of engaged in this ongoing debate about who Captain Moonlight was. Was he a hero? Was he a rapscallion? Mm. Was he really a bushranger? Was he just this pathetic opportunist? And everyone so, has such a strong opinion on, it, on him. And, yeah. like, everyone's opinions are so different. And, just, and yeah. so into this comes so basically you'll see they'll be like oh did you hear about the time moonlight did this and then you'll see that play out that vignette play out yeah, yeah. but then halfway through someone will be like that's not how it happens and, and then replay. it will switch to a different that's version awesome. and so that's kind of how it plays out and then it eventually builds to kind of an ideological climax of like who really was he so that's kind yeah. of the question like who was this man and ultimately is the life he led more important than the legend he left behind mm. so which is kind of thematically mm. where the play comes from and it's been really fun working with dan and james in particular because as the kind of protagonist and antagonist of the show, really, because Moonlight's kind of more of an ideological figure in the whole thing. He's not actually really the main character of the story, mm. even though he drives it. Um, it's been really fun working with the two of you to kind of really figure out the depths of your characters as, like, sort of the upstanding station owner who's very, you know, down the line, very proper, everything has to be just so, and the gang member who's been so hard done by his whole life and has been swept up in the stories of the legendary Captain Moonlight and now has kind of gone along with it, but is having to kind of contend with the fact that the legend he's followed might not quite be as as great a man as he thinks he is. Mm -hmm. And so kind of really playing with the two of your characters, your ideals and the insecurities that undercut those ideals and how the two of you kind of play on those and how those kind of weaken your characters and wear you down has actually, for me, created some of the most dramatically satisfying parts of the show, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's been... Yeah, but that's the thing. You get characters like that and, you know, you're always going to have fun. Um, massive... You know, I've worked with James before and um, we sort of know, you know, how each other works and, you know, how to rile each other up as individuals, <laughs> not just actors. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like <laughs> I feel like that's in there a bit. Um <laughs> 
But yeah, I think uh, on that we should also give uh, a shout out to Tim Constantine. Oh yeah, Tim. yeah. He's so Tim, yeah. Um, I'd, I'd never worked with Tim before. I've never seen any of Tim's work, but he, <laughs> he is incredible. That guy. He um, there's got to be such a theatrical sense of um largeness. To yeah, Captain to, Moonlight. To the character. Yeah, and you know all these big larger than life stories and um. Tim just you know I've, I've sat there and I haven't had a lot of rehearsals yeah. um, with Tim because we don't have a lot of stuff together but when I have seen him work um, beautiful balance between realism and you know over the top theatrics. Tim's Tim's one of those actors who can sort of navigate totally different tones at the drop of a hat mm. so we um he actually the first time I worked with Tim I didn't work with him directly I was kind of itching to direct him was um, my play Regression last year and mm. he played the lead in that and I remember I was on the audition panel for that and he came in and um, Regression was very different to Moonlight. It was kind of a very contemplative sort of theme-driven drama about basically a guy who takes a drug but puts him in a room with his 15-year-old self and the two of them have to kind of contend with the fact that his 15-year-old self isn't the way he remembered him and the older self is not where the 15-year-old thought he would end up in life. Yeah. And the two of them have to kind of deal with that. And Tim came in for his audition and he did... Um, he did this speech from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Dead that's like quite reflective, but quite funny, yeah. and the one about the box. And he did that speech, he did it perfectly, and the director asked him to completely go against the grain of what the dialogue was, or of the intention of the dialogue, and basically do the speech as if he was trying to sell the box to someone. And in a second, he just did it. Yeah. Mm. And then he was like, I want you to do it as if you're in the box. And then he did it as well. <laughs> and it was just the most ridiculous directions yeah. that like was so at odds with what the text was. And Tim just did it like easily. Mm. And so for a character like Moonlight, who was so mercurial, mm. and in one moment has to be very emotional, very reflective, very passionate, and very powerful with a real sense of gravitas, and then two seconds later has to be hilarious and ridiculous and over the top and crazy and zany. Mm. And he just does it. Yeah. Like there's one scene where he has to give essentially three monologues in succession. And um, one thing with Moonlight is that after he got out of jail, he worked briefly as a lecturer. So we toured the lecture circuit and <laughs> basically lectured on, but we don't even, people don't really know what he was lecturing on. Allegedly it was prison reform. And so the characters are talking about his lecture circuit time. And one of them goes, Oh, he was lecturing on bush ranging. And so Tim gets up and does this like big over the top speech on what it is to be a professional bush ranger. Mm. And then one of the other ones like, no, no, that's, that's not what it was. That's not what it was. And then he kind of shifts to giving a similar speech but in this, like, you know, airline, aim your gun at the carriage <laughs> as it approaches and does this, like, very mechanical performance. And someone else like, no, no, it was prison reform. And then he switches to this, like, doing this, like, impassioned speech on mm. prison reform and, like, the suffering of the oppressed Irish and all of this. And he does all three effortlessly within seconds of each other. So Tim's a very mercurial actor and he's... When I sort of first wrote the script, I was like, I don't actually know anyone apart from Tim who can play this part. So I was really, really happy that we had him on board and mm. he's he's really, really brought it for this play. So I think people will be blown away yeah, by what yeah, he does. He's really good. And that's to say nothing of um of the you know of the other actors we've got in the show as well. Mm. Um like James Coley, I've mentioned before, does an excellent job as Tom Brogan, he's kind of the emotional grounds of it. Um Saxon Gray, who plays your brother as well as a variety of other characters, is mm ridiculously funny because like a lot of the characters play multiple different parts he's a very interesting um, actor he's I'm very good at playing a, uh, I was a drunk guy yeah. 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 Very, scene, very surprising there's a scene that I think will have the audience in stitches where Saxon plays the drunk schoolmaster who Captain Moonlight 
allegedly held up in his first robbery. <laughs> and it's just, it's ridiculous. Like, I'm, I've seen him rehearse this scene so many times. Still and every it. time I'm like in agony from laughing at how he plays this part. Like, I keep corpsing. It's so bad. Yeah. Oh, it's so <laughs> bad. It's ridiculous. Um, You're going to have to practice on that one, Dave. Katie, <laughs> Katie Nethercote, who plays your wife. Helen, um, Helen who also plays multiple, multiple different parts is like a great dynamic performer. I've just thrown like the most ridiculous, almost humiliating things at her. And she's been like, yep, sweet. And she just does it. And it's amazing. Um, uh, Ryan Smedley, who's playing James Nesbitt, gives this really beautiful, understated performance as Moonlight's lover. Um, and uh, Megan Scolia Gray, who yep. plays Gus Wernicke. So we've got this um, running joke. One of Moonlight's gang members, Gus Wernicke, who was a 15-year-old boy in real life, we've played as very obviously a girl, but just nobody ever remarks on it. And so Megan <laughs> plays basically this sort of bawdy 15-year-old boy as a girl who's very obviously a girl, and she's she's so funny. Yeah, she's like, done a great job. She just sort of... She's that character who, like, every time there's, like, a moment of seriousness, mm. she'll just chime in with some completely idiotic statement that just completely <laughs> undercuts the tension, but in a way that I think works really it's well. It's good. It, she, it bra- there's a lot of... There's quite a bit of tension, especially in the second act, so... Um, and I feel like Wernicke's character just breaks everything up beautifully. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, guys, you've got me very excited to see this show. Just quickly, before... Have we missed anyone? <laughs> No, we haven't missed it. No, I think we've covered the whole cast. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, that's that sweet. is definitely the whole cast. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> if we missed one person. Oh, it feels so bad. Oh, and that guy. Yeah, there it yeah. is. Oh, yeah, no, he was... Anyway, if, if there's anyone we've missed, they're also really good. <laughs> so, good thing, good thing yeah. about having a small cast. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, that's amazing. I'm definitely going to come and see this. Um, but I just wanted to have a chat about what got you started or interested in the chosen career paths that you've led. So, not only are you a playwright gay, but you're also... You're a published author. You won the Sir Peter Ustinov. I think it's Ustinov. Ustinov? I should know how it's pronounced, but I don't. I'm going to go with what you, yeah. you reckon. Ustinov, a television script writing award um, for... I, was it a play that it's, got turned into a, scri- a screenplay? Yeah, it was... Um, uh, windmills, yeah. How do I explain windmills? Um, <laughs> I, I won't explain it in short because it's too long a story. Basically, it's a novel I wrote in high school... Mm. Um, I rewrote it several times. It's been that one project I just can't let go of. It's sort of a psychological thriller about a teenage mistake that spirals into somebody's adult life. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it in year 12 for the first time, and I've just never, ever been able to let go of this story. Um, I self-published a novelised version of it in, like, 2011, I think, um, which I printed, like, maybe 50, like, really shitty-looking copies of this book um, (laughs) and then sort of left it on a shelf for a while. And then um, I ended up writing it as a screenplay, as a TV pilot, for it was actually my first play as well. I adapted it to a play as well with a youth theatre company I worked with in um, 2010. And um, and then, yeah, basically, um, when I was finishing VCA, I needed a final project, and I've been working on this feature screenplay for ages. So at VCA, you have to come up with either mm. a TV pilot and a Bible or a feature screenplay mm. as your final um, final project in the screenwriting masters. And, um, and, yeah, basically, I kind of got to the end of it, and I had, like, six months left, and I was like, I, I just haven't... this. Film. I don't know what else I can do with this film screenplay. I don't think it's quite working. And I just thought, stuff, I'm going to write Windmills. Mm. And so I wrote a TV pilot for Windmills and I just kind of worked my ass off on it. And it obviously turned out okay. And then I won this award, which sort of was totally life-changing. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah this award, yeah. It was pre- presented at the Emmys? or before? Yeah, The international yeah. Emmys. Um, In New York. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so sorry, the sound this sounds a lot like false modesty. It's more just a case of I don't know how to talk about this without being yeah. like. So that time I went to the Emmys. So it's pretty impressive. Yeah. I think we should. Just, yeah. I um, let's just not downplay um, it. <laughs> let's just let's just say that it's a pretty incredible achievement, and it's uh, you yeah, know a ridiculous. Good, it's crazy. Good kind of 
confirmation well, was, that you're on the right. That's track. exactly it. That's yeah. how I've always thought about it because, like, because there've been times when I've sort of thought because the Youth Novel Award is pretty, pretty prestigious and like you know people who've won it have gone on to some amazing things and um, uh, like I've. I've, there's always been that kind of, you know, that insecure imposter syndrome you always have in the back of your head being like, wait, have I done enough with it? Have I done enough with it? Have I leveraged it to enough stuff? Have I leveraged it to enough stuff? <laughs> and I've sort of like come to realise that the most important thing about the use of, or the, the thing that it really did that was of incomparable value to me was the fact that it kind of, right at the point where I'd finished film school, I had nowhere else to go. I didn't know what else to do with my career. I didn't know how to further my career anymore. This award came along and suddenly it was like, I'm not barking up the wrong tree. Mm. Like, I am actually, I have, I have something I can point to that is reasonably solid proof that I'm good at what I do. And I think like a lot of young writers, a lot of young artists really, because people say, oh, don't worry about validation. But it's like, no, you, you do need validation because like if you come into an artistic career for a long time, you've kind of only got your word that you're any good at what you do. And if you are at a bar or something, somebody's like, what are you doing? You say, I'm a writer. There's always that, oh, yeah, sure, mm, sure. Writer. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I, I once wrote half a short story and put it in the bin, but yeah, I'm a yeah. writer as well. Mm. And, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> and like being able to sort of have the use of there kind of goes some way to eliminating that perpetually lingering imposter syndrome or that lingering sense of, am I good enough to make this? Mm. Why do I even think I can do this? What the hell is wrong with me to think I can make a go of this career? And it's like, well, whether anything, whether things kind of get bigger or better or whatever happens, I've got that to point to be like, no, no, I am on the right track. And Mm. that's fortunate because I'm literally not good at anything else. So it's kind (laughs) of the career path I have to pursue. So now that you've written for musical theatre, how many um, mediums have you written across? Exactly. Um, so musical theatre, um, straight theatre, um, a couple of novels, obviously Boone Shepherd um, and the self-published Windmills, um, <laughs> which I've actually yeah. rewritten as a book that I can hopefully get published properly. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, and then I've written I've written for screen, but never anything that's been produced. Mm. So um, still written for it. Though. So yeah, I've, I mean, I've written screenplays, but nothing that's. I mean, apart from one web series pilot that was shot but will never see the light of day um, <laughs> that that um that was sort of my one i guess screen credit at this point um so yeah so i've pretty much written across and you got audio plays but, as well well yeah the radio so yeah the movie maintenance presents which is the spin-off of my mm. podcast movie maintenance where we it's what it sounds like we fix bad movies um and then we basically it's a, the cast are all working writers and so basically we create a spin-off show that is radio plays and audio dramas mm. or like essentially audio books of short stories or novellas we've written. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, but I mean, it, it sounds like a cheat to say I've written for radio plays because really they're just my straight plays adapted slightly. So instead of being like... <laughs> nah, climb it. Just yeah, climb it. Yeah, no, yeah. written for radio <laughs> plays. It's not a technicality. Yeah. It's different. Like, the, the change is literally things like if in a play, two characters are, one character's holding a beer and the other one goes, oh, pass me that. It's pass me that beer. Yeah. Just so <laughs> yeah. that you understand yeah. Yeah. from an audio medium what they're doing. But yeah. So, so not only are you a writer, but you're also direct... And you have dabbled a bit in acting as well. I believe you're in your friend's Dracula. Oh, yeah. Play. No, I did that. Um, I don't know if that friend's ever going to forgive me for what I did that <laughs> character. But, um, that is a good endorsement. But, yeah, no, no, no. I, look, I'm, um, the Dracula play was written by Sean Carney, who was on Movie Maintenance as well. So it was an awesome play. It was, like, produced by my production company and, like, was our biggest financial success to this point because, mm. like, it was Dracula. It was a cool take on the character. Mm. Um and anyway, like Ash, the director, asked me to audition for it for this one part. He's only on the stage for about five minutes. And like, God, I think the audience wants every second of those five minutes back. <laughs> but, um, but it was actually really, really fun. But it's, it's one of those things where like when I was a teenager, I was always super interested in acting and writing. Mm. And 
up until kind of my first or second year out of high school, I was sort of balancing both. And it got to the point where I realized like, I'm legitimately, I am getting better at writing, but I'm not getting better at acting. Hmm. And I kind of got to the point where I was like, I work, I, I did a couple of like minor parts in plays out of school and I'm working with really talented actors and you see the stuff that they can do so effortlessly. And you're like, I, I can't do that. Hmm. I can't bring that emotional honesty. I think I can on the page, but in terms of actually presenting it in a performance, I, I couldn't do that. And so I eventually got to the point where I was like, okay, the thing is about pursuing any career in the arts, it requires 100% focus and commitment. Um, I can only give one of these things all of my time and effort. And mm. it's going to have to be the writing because that's what I'm more passionate about. I'm more passionate about telling stories and my own stories. And so that was kind of... I guess the crux where I'm like, I'm still happy to jump on stage. Like I did Dracula. Mm. I wouldn't have, I would not have gone near that if it had been in any way a bigger part than it was. Yeah. <laughs> like, and the character literally just required me to do my best, which was really bad. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch impersonation. <laughs> so that was basically just how I, how I sort of approached that. That was all of the motives and backstory and kind of depth and detail. Mm. I infused that part mm. with, but, um, but yeah, no, as of, as of this year, I'm pretty exclusively a writer. Great. Um, and do you find it uh, difficult as a director of your own work to kind of keep a bit of distance between the writing part of yourself and the directing part of yourself or are you able um, to as a director be like no this isn't working I need to change this directing directing your own work is like because I've, I've directed other people's work before and mm. have not done very well of it um, but I think there's an immediate cheat code to directing your own work in that you innately kind of understand what you were trying to say and what you were trying to convey with it mm. um and with a lot of plays of mine, I'm really happy to just kind of hand them over. There's been one or two that I'm kind of like, I want to hang on to and do myself. And there have been a couple of other ones that I've sort of initially stepped in to do out of necessity and then um, have found immensely rewarding, like Moonlight and um, my play Springsteen last year, which was sort of a Bruce Springsteen, I guess, biopic. And we realised that in our whole production company, nobody else cared about Bruce Springsteen <laughs> like I did. So there was only kind of one logical choice to direct that. And that yeah. was like probably one of the most rewarding creative experiences I've ever had was directing that play. And Moonlight's been very much the same because, mm. I don't know, just something about getting to sort of, when you write something, you you know, you spend the time it takes to write it and then the time it takes to edit it and workshop it and whatever, and then you kind of pass it on. But when you direct it, it's like that process doesn't stop. Mm. You just keep delving deeper and deeper into the characters, into the ideas. You find you new ways to approach it, new angles of thinking about the story. And it's, yeah, it's like, I wouldn't direct everything I'd written for sure, but, um, but doing it here and there, I really, really enjoy. And I, I find it really rewarding. And there's just something about like having a character you've like, there's, there's a certain like special thing to writing a character, leaving it for six months and coming and seeing the finished product and being like, Oh, that's my character who I wrote. And there they are on stage. And I don't know any of what went into it, but they've just come to life in front of me. Yeah. And there's, but there is actually something, um, almost more gratifying to being behind the curtain on it and being able to like work with the actor to kind of realize the character as best as they can. The only difference is that when you direct it yourself, you can't just point the director and say, they fucked it up. <laughs> My script was good and they screwed it all up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, no, directing Moonlight has been really, really awesome. And I've been, I've been very, very lucky to have like in, in most plays you do, you always have one person in the cast where you're like, Oh, God, you are such a piece of shit. <laughs> but, but um, that's me. Just so yeah, you know. that's that's yeah, yeah, that's. that's but because he's on air with us yeah, right now, yeah, can't really talk about yeah, it. Yeah. We brought him on to safeguard that. Yeah. But no, I've been I've been really lucky in Moonlight, and that there's not a single person in cast who I wouldn't work with again, um, and who I haven't thoroughly enjoyed working with. Um, everybody's been very committed to the project. Everybody's brought their all to the project, and that's kind of all you can ask for, mm. you know. 
Awesome. Well, I think it's uh, your turn, Dan. Uh, now, you seem to be a bit of a specialist with doing brand new Australian work. <laughs> I knew this would come um, yeah, So, okay. not only are you doing Moonlight, but you've done, you did The Gathering last year, mm-hmm. uh, which is a uh, Gen Y uh, kind of show. I, got, I think it got described as. Yeah. Um, an interesting kind of look at how your past can affect you. Yeah, yeah. The Gathering... Um, the Gathering was a very different kind of project um, to what Moonlight is. Um, the Gathering was sort of um, the rehearsals were um, a bit of a workshop. Um, uh, they were re- rewriting a lot of stuff as they went, um, and you know, fantastic experience. Got to work with some great friends, um, but super different mm. in almost every regard. Like um, the songs um, were very much. Um, play and um, you know a couple of stand delivers and you know it was it was very much the gathering um, was very much you know a new Australian musical mm. um, and uh, you know apart from obvious differences like when it was set mm. and things like that um, yeah it's just been Moonlight has been you know, we got our scripts, this is what it, what it was set, you know, Gabe's always open to discussion and stuff like that, but no, nothing was really changing mm-hmm. around us, you know, um, he'd ask our opinions on, you know, certain things um, and stuff like that, but it was very much, um, you know, you don't really want to, <laughs> when the writing's that good, you don't, yeah. I don't really want to make, you know, there's a couple of suggestions where I'm like, okay, well, maybe I can like stutter this sentence out or, you know, something like that, but um, very, very specific um, direction, um from Gabe because obviously he knows what he wants. He wrote the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, but at the same time, you know, that sense of play and being able to discover the characters and, you know, we've had a lot of fun. I, I get to play um, one other character um, apart from my own um, and it's it's just been a lot of fun, mm-hmm. really, just like sort of creating. Brain. Yeah, brain. Brain. Oh, brain. So that, this is the scene with the drunken schoolmaster. Oh, yeah, okay. And what I what I didn't mention was um, because I was busy plugging um, plugging Saxon's work. Is that um, so? Historically, the the context of this scene is that um, that Captain Moonlight allegedly held up a bank in the mm. town where he worked as a pastor, and um, <clears throat> and the next day the teller of the bank kind of came and was like to the police. Hey, uh, Captain Moonlight held up the bank, and Moonlight basically went to trial up against um, this, the bank teller Brune and the schoolmaster James Simpson, who was the only witness to it, but who was drunk of his ass the whole time. And Brune, if you read the court transcripts, it's so funny because Moonlight did nothing to defend himself apart from the fact that like he just dropped obvious facts that said he couldn't have been there. Mm. Like basically, there was just there was no evidence whatsoever that he could have been there. Even Brune's Brune and Moonlight were apparently good friends, but even <laughs> Brune's description of Moonlight didn't match up to what Moonlight <laughs> actually looked like. So basically, Brune was just a complete idiot, yeah. and his only sort of witness was the drunken schoolmaster who couldn't mm. keep his story straight. Mm. And so, in the court transcripts, Moonlight just literally spent the entire court case insulting Brune oh, and just repeatedly insulting Brune. So we've we've played the scene of the court case as just Moonlight insulting them, which leads into a really really funny song that Dan's written and we just played Brune as somebody with half a brain like literally with half a functioning brain who just like is always like a full two seconds behind everything else and um yeah pretty much and then so like the interplay between him and Sax as a schoolmaster is just painfully fun oh, so um, and I think I think Dan you really relish the chance yeah to play there's somebody. nothing better than playing dumb yeah um, but yeah I, w- I will say just just back on the gathering um and like 
other other new works that I've worked on, like the Homegrowns that I've done and um, Little Touch of Chaos and Einstein and things like that. But they've always been, um, uh, you know, a workshop process that, you know, things have all been always been changing mm. and being pulled out and put back in. Um, and, yeah, uh, Moonlight hasn't really been like that at all. There's Nothing's been mm. cut. Um, so it's more like you know your first date or the dog fight or Paris that you've done. Well, yeah, it's, it's a set it's a show, set show. Um, and yeah, the good thing about like all those shows, I will say the similarity is that you know everyone is so good. <laughs> Normally, creatives are great, um, especially ones that I've worked with on New Australian works. That they're always open to hearing suggestion and you know you don't just go oh i think it should be this you know you, you obviously go um gently gently but people are lovely and they are always open to suggestion and gabe's exactly the same as mm. you know chris parker's daniel Puckey's, like peter rutherford's you know people are always um very open um to not just you know you're an actor but you're mm. also you're helping them discover you're, these well, characters you kind of have to be like it's one of those things where uh, i've always thought this like <clears throat> as a as a writer, you sort of spend like maybe a few days working on the script, really spread over a bit of time, and then sort of you know you do your workshop and everything afterwards. But if you're like me and you sort of do a lot of different things, then you maybe don't spend all that much time in the script. And then when an actor goes away with your script, they spend like months mm. with this character and mm. with these lines and working it out and working out the subtleties and the subtext and everything. They come back, they're like, oh, you know, I loved how you got this bit of symbolism in this line. You're like, yeah, I definitely intended that. <laughs> that was a thing that but was meant. That I was think planned. if you're a writer and you don't listen to your actors and don't listen to when they come to you and they say, I don't know if this works or I don't know if this line works or whatever, mm. and if you're the kind of writer who says, shut up, I know what I'm talking about, it's like, no, you, you, you probably don't. Mm. Well, I've like, always heard people getting really defensive about their work and I've heard stories about, you know, other people working with other creatives, but... Honestly, I've, I've never experienced anything like that. I've never experienced... It's always a conversation. It's never a flat-out no, you can't do that. To me, it's one of those things where it's like... And it's, it's like if you get a bad review for a play, and which I have done, and there's two examples I can think of. One is I got a bad review for a play, for a play where I read it and I was like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, every single one of your critiques... I can point to a point in the play where that was just not the case because the critiques were like, oh, there weren't enough female characters... The female characters didn't have enough agency. And I'm like, the point of the play was that the one of the female characters fucks over all the men in the play through like her own manipulations and everything. Like it's, it's literally what you're saying is completely like, did you just kind of walk in there with an idea of what the play would be and decide on that at the start? But then there was, and so I read that and it was very easy to shrug it off because Mm. it was like, I just don't agree with you. Whereas I've also read bad reviews of mine that really sting. And if Mm. they really sting and I find myself getting defensive, that's when I know that they're true. So So when people, if people are inclined to get defensive about critiques of their work during the development process, um, to me, why get defensive? Like, to me, if you get defensive, it means you actually don't have an answer to the person who's critiquing it. Mm. Like, if somebody comes to me... Like, I had this really interesting experience after my last play, The Commune, where um, one of the... Uh, Kashmir, one of the actors in it, his agent came up to me and he sort of, like, made a couple of critiques about it. And I suddenly realised, I was like, well, actually, no, those are interesting points. Like, I get what you're saying, but the reason I chose to go the way I did mm. was this, 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 and this. Mm. And then you kind of realise, well, you you don't need to get offended if you know why you did what you did. Mm. And if you have an answer for them, an answer for the critics where it's like, well, no, this was my point, then it's very easy to kind of brush it off and be like, well, no, I can see why you think the way you do, but there was a very specific reason why it was the way it was. Whereas if you actually haven't thought it through and if you're just kind of like, oh, it's fine, it's all fine, everything's all right, and then somebody criticises it, that's kind of when you're more inclined to get defensive because essentially you know you haven't thought about it, you know you haven't done the job, and this and person no inadvertently is calling you out in it by calling out like one line, and that's when you get defensive. So 
so to me, like, I don't know, I think, I think strong defensiveness in critiquing a script almost always comes from a place of insecurity. Um, not, not always, well, but I, th- yeah. I think sometimes people get attached to their work as well. And they, you know, as I said, I haven't really ever experienced this, but, um, it's always something tricky that you have to navigate with working with new works. Um, <coughs> and especially when the writer is in the room mm. as well. And it could, it could be the other way. You could be doing a shit job and you could not be doing like anything of what's being asked of you. And, you know, directors and writers work in collaboration and things like that. So it's always a two two way street. Yeah, <laughs> actors yeah, aren't no, perfect. No, I've got that. No. By stretch of the imagination. So, yeah. Um, well, so you've done a whole heap of shows. You want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the the preset ones, like First Date or Dogfight or Paris, which was a concert version. Um, yeah. Uh, well, First Date really wasn't that set. Um, uh, the the people who were doing the rights um, gave Pursued by Bear quite a lot of um creative license to not, not change a lot of stuff but we had to settle in Melbourne because mm. a lot of the jokes were very New York based and just didn't make any, any sense. sense and a lot of the jokes would have been lost so um, Pursue by Bear did the clever thing and set it you know in a Melbourne coffee store and um, so that was that was not really set at all because there was a lot of you know <laughs> jokes and things that we were allowed to add mm. um, and I got to work with um, you know some fantastic people on that production and very, very funny. So um, that was sort of, you know, all of us as a group sort of, you know, bouncing off each other, seeing what works, what didn't, um, and very different senses of humour as well, which really, really helped with that. So kind of complimentary. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that First Date was kind of set at all. I, f- mm. I feel like it kind of, um, you know, Mark Taylor directed that one and he's got such a good sense of humour. I'll never admit that I complimented him, ever. <laughs> um, but he's got such a great sense of humour that he, he sort of was able to um, able to listen to everyone's ideas and, um, yeah, really find something quite special with that. And, you know, even Paris, to a certain extent, that was, um, you know, it, it you know, John English it put all this work in, um, sadly passed away, um, and his son, John Sora and Isaac Haywood and a couple of other people came together and, you know, gave it the life that it deserved. So um, with that, that was n- new as mm. well. It hadn't been done um, professionally. There was um, a concept album, I think. There, w- there was a concept album. Um, it had Barry Humphreys and, you know, a whole bunch of Australian icons on it and things like that. Um, but it had never had a fully, you know, sort of stage, stage, production. stage production. So, um, Paris, I guess you could say Paris, rock Odyssey was also a newish Australian work. Um, cause you know, all the work that went in from, especially Isaac and John, um, sort of made it that it was something that people hadn't heard before. Even people who love John English's work and had the album, um, you know, with still uh, staying true to John English, um, they made some exceptional um, choices and changes. And um, it, that was, again, a fantastic thing to just be a part of and work with those people. Um, but, yeah, I'd, I'd say that that was, um, yeah, like one of the songs that I sang wasn't in the original cast record, well, that I sang on, one of the songs I sang on, um, it wasn't in the original cast recording. So, you know... It, Again, I would say, you know, not really set. You can't go and listen to a cast recording to get, like, sort of where mm. where everything is. Um, but, yeah, a- apart from that, like, um, sort of the other musical theatre shows I've done, like at uni and Dogfight and stuff like that, yeah, it's been, you know, y- you have to... That's what musical theatre is. You have to 
stick to pretty set mm. parameters. But that being said, um, all actors are pretty good at making this stuff their own. Like, yeah. I always go back to you're in town having to play a 60 year old man. Oh, that was so much I was, I'm pretty close to it, but. Uh, <laughs> well, you're but, only a couple of years yeah, off. Yeah, a co- couple yeah. of years <laughs> off. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for, you know, a 20, 25 year old playing a 60 year old man. There's always going to be something different. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That. So, um, amazing. Yeah. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Uh, now, gents, if, there, if you were, wanted to be found on social media, where would you be found? Uh, do you have any Instagrams or maybe a blog or something you'd like to be? My found? Instagram and Twitter are the same. It's um, God Bergmoser, so my first name, initial surname, Bergmoser, so just Geo Bergmoser, one word. Um, Bergmoser sounds like it's difficult to spell. It's not. P E R G M O S E R. It's exactly how it sounds. Um, and yeah, then yeah, my website is just myname.com. So, uh, and so yeah. um, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, I highly recommend uh, tuning into Movie Maintenance uh, as well as Movie Maintenance Presents if you're a big fan of film too. Daniel? Um, I only have uh, Instagram um, and it is at Daniel CO. Um, I'm not, yeah. I'm not opinionated enough to have Twitter, so, <laughs> so I, I'm not on it. Yeah. Um, and I will put a link uh, to finding tickets for Moonlight on the uh, show attachment, so make sure you get along to that. Uh, thanks for coming on, boys. Cheers, thanks for having yes, us. Yes, thank you. And uh, to everyone listening, uh, leave a cheeky rating or comment if you feel so inclined, and I look forward to hearing, well, I guess you hearing me next time. <laughs> All the best, guys. <laughs>